It's good to see you, to have you with us this morning. Let me pray for us. We've got a lot to do this morning, and um, we're going to pray for God's uh, efficiency and God's effectiveness, because uh, I don't see many of you having brought lunches with you. Uh, so <laughs> to get this done, we're going to need his help. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for this tremendous privilege that we have to come together as your people uh, being transformed by your spirit uh, because of your son into his image and likeness that we might truly experience life to the fullest and joy to the fullest the way that we were designed and created by you to experience it and live. And so we ask for your spirit to come and do what only he can do and to make my words effective uh, and to make my words useful for the transformation of souls and the transformation of lives uh, that you might be glorified that you might be made much of through the way that we live and honor you, that our desires might reflect your desires, that we might become a people who delight themselves in you, that we might taste your desires, and your desires become the ruling desires of our hearts. That's what we're after, and for that to happen, we need your help. That's something that only you can do. And so we ask for your presence and your power in our time together this morning. May it be beneficial and useful for your glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. We are taking the month of May and what looks like the first week of June now, uh, calendars are flexible, um, to unpack what we mean when we talk about the values that are central to Redemption Hill. Uh, We are not concerned, and I've tried to be clear uh, over the few weeks that we've started, I am not concerned with what other churches talk about when they talk about values. I'm not concerned with what books you've read about values and what that means and how they're defined. My chief and primary concern is what we mean at Redemption Hill when we talk about the things that we value or the convictions that we hope to see cultivated and taking root in our souls. Uh, I'm after the things that we want to prioritize or the limbs, like we talked about in the first week, that we want to walk out on the convictions that we are willing to walk out on in our lives and and hold on to with everything that we are. Uh, This is what we're unpacking. This is what we're talking about, what it means to be Redemption Hill. And and more than just ideas and more than just values or more than just things that we want to be able to talk about and rally around and and put on banners and argue and debate and, and find good language for, more than just the idea of the value, we're after what it means when it's cultivated into our life. We're after what it looks like. We're after these, these values or these convictions actually being embodied. And there's one thing to have values that end up disembodied, these great ideas that we can all adhere to and talk about and agree upon and, and have the same language for and champion and, and put up around us and, and find ourselves surrounded by. It's a whole other thing to actually embody those things in our lives, to actually allow those things and, and be a part of the process of seeing those things cultivated into our soul. And so when we talk about values, we're not just talking about things which we've already discussed like Jesus and the gospel and the Bible. We're after what those things look like and what fruit, what action, what response should be produced in our lives as those things become cultivated as primary values. So when we talked about Jesus, the first week we started, we didn't just talk about the fact that we value Jesus, that he is of supreme importance into the life of Redemption Hill and should be of supreme importance and value in your life. We talked about what it means to actually worship Jesus above everything else because we're after this value being embodied in our life and the expectation is as Jesus becomes more valued, worship is produced in our life. And so we talked about worshiping Jesus above everything else and then we talked about treasuring the riches of the gospel 
not just adhering to the idea that the gospel should be a value, that what God has done for us in Christ, which we could not do for ourselves, that the message of the good news of, of Jesus is, is not just something to be valued and, and debated and understood and talked about and, and agreed upon the books that get it right and the books that get it wrong. It's to be something that we are to treasure, that we're to hold on to, that we're to cling to with this kind of ferocity because we believe of the imminent and immense value that it has for our lives and for the changing of our lives to the glory of God. So we talked about treasuring the riches of the gospel. And last week we talked about the Bible, but not just the Bible or the word of God or the scriptures and, and all of the reasons why we should read it and all the reasons why it's important and, and all of the arguments people have for it. We didn't just talk about the role and the value of the Bible. We talked about what it meant to actually surrender ourselves to it. That's the proper response to the word of God, the, the living and active word of God, the word of God that simply spoke and all things that are came into existence is a surrendering. It's a surrendering of ourselves and our desires and our wants and our needs to it, not in some kind of deference, but out of a joy that recognizes the value and the power inherent in it. It's a surrendering to the word of God, knowing that in it is life, because in the word of God, we encounter Jesus. We encounter God himself, a very personal and very real God. So we talked about surrendering to the word of God and, and what it means to embody these things. We've said that our embodied values or our convictions are those things that if we were to be a, a people that traded places with the cast of lost and we found ourselves deserted on some desert island, though we would have left home and job and cars and, and friends and family and toys and all of those things, the things that could never leave us, the things that always go with us, are those convictions and those values. And so we would expect in our interactions with one another and anything that came out of our lives, we would expect to see reflected in how we lived these values. We would expect to see worship of Jesus above other things reflected in the way that we lived there. So our, our convictions, our values, these things that we embody are essential to who we are. They're woven deep into the tapestry of, of our souls. And, and we call this series Cultivate, for those of you that, that haven't been around, a quick recap, because these are things that we have to actually be intentional about seeing produced in our life. We don't just bump into these things and all of a sudden Jesus worship above everything else because our hearts are, are prone to worship so many other things before Jesus. Our hearts are prone to exalt so many other things in his place, and we don't just treasure the riches of what he's done for us in the gospel. We don't just treasure the, the immense value of what he has done and seek to find its applications in our life and surrender to it. We, we try to figure out how to fix ourselves and fix other people. My wisdom is treasured greatly and more highly than the wisdom and the riches of God in the gospel. So we've got to be about cultivating the richness and a, and a treasuring in our life. So we call the series Cultivate because it's like sowing and tending a field and planting a garden. There's, there's work that has to be done. There's work that we have to do. There's seeds that have to be sown and roots of weeds that have to be pulled out and nourishment that has to be put in and, and work that has to be done. It has to be done. And, and all of it, though, to the, to the realization that ultimately it's the power of God and the production of life that actually causes something to grow. It's this synergistic cooperation between us and, and God in our lives that sees these values and these convictions cultivated to produce the fruit, of the expected fruit, I should say, of these convictions or these values becoming supreme in our hearts and in our souls. So this week we're gonna, we're gonna step into the next one and we're gonna talk a little bit about what it means to actually delight in the wisdom of God's process. What would it actually mean to cultivate a delight in our souls, a delight in the wisdom 
of God's process. And so we'll, we'll come out of the gate with something really quick and, and we'll throw out some five and 10 and, and $20 words this morning. So, so just hold on to it. We're gonna come out with an idea really quick. When we talk about God's process, when we talk about this idea of the wisdom of God's process, what we're talking about are what is what theologians call sanctification. So let me give you a definition for sanctification so that you can, you can come along with me and we'll, we'll work from here. Roger Nicole, one of my favorite theologians, Scottish theologian, he said that sanctification is the work of God in concurrence with the renewed will and energy of the Christian, which secures growth, development, and maturity in the life and personality of the believer. A lot of statements there. Did it come up on the screen? I don't think it did. Number 13. That was my number in soccer, by the way. Uh, that could be providential, prophetic. I don't think anybody's going to call me out of retirement. I can't run up and down a field anymore, but that was my number. Um, I'll read it to you again. Roger Nicole said that sanctification is the work of God in concurrence with the renewed will and energy of the Christian, which secures growth, development, and maturity in the life and personality of the believer. Sanctification is a big word that stands for or is an umbrella over this whole idea of maturity. It's an umbrella and an idea that stands for this whole idea of the process of growing and maturing into the likeness and the image of Christ. It's this whole idea of growth and process or, or this word that we talk about a lot around here that we don't just make up and add to it, but we actually get from the Bible, you'll see in a second. Sanctification has this idea that sits over this whole process of transformation of being changed, of being transformed. Listen, listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, is that up there? No, we're, we're slide behind. I'll go back again. There we go. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. See, back in the Old Testament, in, in, in the time of Moses, to, to stand in the presence of the Lord, Moses would have to cover his face because he couldn't look upon the glory of the Lord. He couldn't look upon God without being destroyed, and so he had to veil his face. But now, because of what God has done for us in Jesus and the work of God in Christ and the transformation of our soul, we now, because of Christ, have access to God and can stand before God and look upon God without veiling our face and look upon the glory of the Lord. As we do that, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Transformation, sanctification, transformation is all talking about this process of being transformed into the image of God in Christ, into the image and likeness of Jesus. I'll give you a few pictures. One comes right from 2 Corinthians 3. Do any of you, let's try to, let's try to put it this way, do any of you know or recognize or play with or play with your kids with those fuzzy uh, woolly caterpillar things that crawl on the sidewalks and on your garages and, and eat all the leaves off your trees when they all come in swarms and destroy all the fruit in your gardens. And you know what I'm talking about? Those fuzzy, funky-looking caterpillar things? Well, you know, there, there comes a time when those fuzzy, funky-looking caterpillars that destroy your trees and your gardens set aside their time and actually go through this process where those funky, fuzzy destroyers of all things green become these beautiful, majestic butterflies that land ever so quietly and softly 
on the petal of a flower, on the leaf of a tree without causing any harm or or any damage to it. These fuzzy, ugly, funky destroyers of trees and flowers become these unbelievably majestic and beautiful and glorious creatures, these butterflies. And Do you know what the, the word for that process is? Come on, scholars. What'd you say? Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. That is the word that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians 3 for transformation, for being transformed into the same image. Paul is saying that there is this process that we all undergo as we behold the glory of the Lord in Christ, as we behold the riches of the gospel, actually as we begin to treasure those things and behold them for what they are, we actually are being transformed, going through a metamorphosis, a change into the image, the likeness of Christ, into that glory with which we're actually beholding. We actually go through this unbelievable process where the, the, the sinners and, 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 and prideful, arrogant nasty people like myself that we are go through this unbelievable process where we are transformed into the very glory that we gaze upon and treasure in the gospel. We go through this metamorphosis, this transformation, this process of sanctification. Uh, another picture, depending upon how your brain is wired, maybe you don't like caterpillars or go outside because it's too hot and you sweat and you don't like it, so you stay inside. Um, you can drive around Richmond and you can see some unbelievably glorious homes. I mean, some homes that were built 100, 150 years ago that are absolutely stunning. These giant 8, 10, 12-room homes that were estates at one time, but over the years have fallen into this unbelievable disrepair. The, the bushes and the weeds have overgrown the lawn and the garden that was probably once absolutely stunning. And, and the roof has been punctured and water has fallen through into the house and, and puddles have developed over the years and begun to destroy everything that was in there. The furniture has begun to rot and be covered with dust and the water has, has warped the floorboards and termites have come in and infested the foundation and the wood has been eaten and the house is just falling apart. And, and you can imagine driving by these houses that are all over our city like this, but at one time you see this, this man, this skilled architect will call him walk into this house and begin to look around this house and over a period of days and, and weeks and months begin to bring in craftsmen and crews of men to to take away the things that have overgrown in the yard to remove that termite infested wood and replace those floor joists with healthy boards and you begin to see the roof begin to take shape again and the water and the leakage stop and that old furniture and all that junk that accumulated in that house that was all dusty and old and nasty is taken out of the house and it's not just left empty but he brings in new furniture and new carpets and new furnishings that are that are glorious and you see this floor this beautiful hardwood floor restored to its original luster and where things were hidden Old things are revealed and pocket doors are found in walls that have been covered up over the years. And you see this unbelievable home, this unbelievable estate return to its former glory in the hands of a very skilled architect and craftsman. That's the process of sanctification. That's the process of metamorphosis. That's the transformation that's going on in our lives by the Spirit of God, Paul says, when we understand who God is for us in Jesus. And, and it doesn't just happen. We don't just bump into it. It's not just something that one day we casually wake up and we've gone from this unbelievably ramshacked human being to the image of God in Christ. It's, it's actually a process. 
It's actually a work in progress that occurs. And, and we'll talk about it this way. Where does it actually start? Where does this process of transformation, this idea of sanctification, this metamorphosis actually start? It actually starts, here's the $8 word number two for the morning. We talked about sanctification and the idea, and we're going to come back to it. Sanctification and this metamorphosis and this process, this unbelievably beautiful process, and we'll see its beauty here in a minute, starts with this thing theologians call regeneration. So sanctification and this growth and maturity and this process of becoming more like Christ and the image of God in Christ taking root in our life actually goes back and it starts with this thing called regeneration. And you don't have to be an English scholar to figure out the words that come out of that and what roots are in there. We're talking about regenerate. We're talking about something old becoming new, something broken becoming fixed something regenerated. In fact, in the Old Testament, God actually spoke to his people and promised this process through men like Ezekiel. Uh, if it comes up here, Ezekiel chapter 26, you'll, you'll, you'll catch up here. I'm gonna start back a few verses just so you can see what was going on and we can, we can paint this picture. A few verses before that, it says in Ezekiel 36, 22, therefore God says, say to the house of Israel, it is not for your sake, Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So God says, I'm about to do something that's not just for you, but it's for me. And it's for my name, which you've absolutely slandered among all the people that you live with. Among all the nations that you've gone to, you have actually made my name mean nothing and drug it through the mud. And I'm about to do something, not just for your sake, but for my sake and, and for the sake of my name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. So if you didn't get it the first time, I'm gonna tell you again, you've made me look bad and I'm about to do something about this. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares God, when, listen to this, when through you, I vindicate my holiness in their eyes. So here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna act for the sake of my name, which you have drugged through the mud in all of these people's eyes, and I'm gonna act in such a way that it's you, the one who has slandered me and made me look bad. It's what I'm gonna do in you that's gonna make me look holy and make me look great again the way I designed this thing. Don't, don't miss what God's saying here. Remember, we can jump right to these verses and you miss the whole thing. God's about to do something in his people that makes him look great, but it changes them in the process so that it's through them that he actually looks great. When it's been through them that he actually looked bad. Here's what he said he's gonna do. Listen to this. I will take you from the nations and gather from you all the countries around and bring you into your own land. So all these people who've been scattered and separated, all these people who've taken on the customs and practices of all the nations and lands that they've been, all the people who have assumed the idols and the, and the customs of the lands that they've been in, who are so far separated from one another now, God is gonna bring them all back together all of their differences, all of their ethnic distinctions. God is going to bring them all back. I'm going to bring you back into this place. And here's what he says in verse 26. I'll give you a new heart, and I'll give you a new spirit, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What God said is, I'm going to make my name great amongst all the people when I come into you and I take from you your rebellious, hard heart and I replace it with a heart of flesh, 
a heart that is tender towards who I am, a heart that is tender towards my desires. I am actually going to act in you and change you from the inside out so that as you're changed and you live out of a new heart with new desires, my name will be made great and my desires will be in your heart. And as you follow the desires that are now in your heart, you will receive joy and I'll be made holy among all the people. That's what God says he's going to do. This is what regeneration is. God actually acts on us to take this hard heart, this rebellious heart, this heart that is cold to him, this heart that understands and hears the word of the gospel and the message of Christ, and it's like bullets off of a rock just pinging around a a quarry. He's going to take that thing out, and he's going to put in a tender, soft heart towards him. With that soft heart towards him come new desires. All of a sudden, the things that God desires become the desires of your heart because he has taken out this heart and put this heart in. And this heart desires the things that are his. And for some of you, this is actually what's happening and you don't know it yet. For some of you, there's this process that has been acted upon you where this cold, rebellious heart, this heart that did not understand, comprehend, or even desire the things of God has been removed, and this new heart has been put in, and you don't know what's happening. All of a sudden, you're wanting to do things that you never wanted to do before. You actually come to church on a Sunday morning. You actually get up early enough to come here. I mean, for me, it was in college when this was most profound, when I had grown up in the church and I, I had heard, really, the, the gospel as a young kid. I really did understand Jesus and hear about Jesus. And, and from there, though, my heart was very cold um, and very distant. And, and there was this point in college, close to my last year in school, when God acted upon me in such a way that I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I was in college to play soccer, to have fun, and to find a wife. That's what I was in college for. I transferred schools not only to play at a different school, but to go to a school that gave me the best option to find a wife. That's what I was in college for. All of the people that I lived with, I lived with other soccer players, and, and, and we went to a school that at one time was a former church school, I guess you could call it, but they had lost their funding from the denomination they were a part of because they didn't really teach the Bible. Um, but there was just still this contention of Christian people at the school. And all of my roommates and I, I honestly, uh, no lie, I honestly think we were like an initiation project for the new Christians in, in, the, in, the, in this college Bible studies. I mean, we would sit in this, this student commons in this quad and you could watch people look at us and talk and, and, and ramble and then somebody get up and sheepishly come over you know, and open up this little piece of paper and ask us these absolutely ridiculous questions about what we think we would say to God if we were to die. And we're like, Are you kidding me? You know, my, my best friend and roommate, his dad was the head of the philosophy department at the college, and he was a, a Phi Beta Kappa honor student and all these different, I don't even know, all these awards in philosophy, and we just tear people apart. Tear people apart. All of a sudden, though, something happened. I don't know what happened. I didn't drink anything or hear anything. I drank a lot of things, but I don't think any of them did this. I I woke up, and something was different. Uh, Desires were were in my heart, in my mind, that had never been in there before, and I found myself actually sneaking into church on Sunday. It's a very strange thing in Nashville. There's lots of churches everywhere, and everybody goes. But I was sneaking in. And I was finding the biggest churches that I could find with the biggest balconies that I could find so I could sit in the furthest back row that I knew when the prayer was coming because I'd been in church enough as a kid. I knew when that moment was coming, I could get up and walk back out. I didn't have to deal with 
the implications of what was actually happening in my heart. But these new desires were being formed, and then all of a sudden, there was just this time when the reality of who God was in Jesus collided with my soul, and these desires exploded, and I wasn't sneaking into places anymore. I was actually not going to my house so that I could get somewhere else to sleep so I could wake up in time to actually go to church because I wanted to be there. I was not going home to 200, 250 people at my house on a Saturday night and going to a friend's house or my parents' house so that I could sleep, so I could actually get up, so I could go to church, so I could learn more about what was going on in my heart. And I remember this moment so clearly. It was a Wednesday night. It was my junior year. We played a game before the professional team in Nashville. It was like, a, like an opening game for the start of their season. We were playing Clemson, and I took a really nasty cleat to the top of my knee, right in the bottom of my quadricep, and I had a bruise that went down to the fourth layer of my muscle, and my quadricep began to swell up over my knee, and it would just, like, dangle over my knee. And the game was over. It was a Wednesday night. So I had to go back to the school, back to the training room, and sit in this ice bath and wrap my leg up to try to get this thing going. But my pastor, who I loved, and I, st- I mean, I still love this guy dearly. I mean, he could teach the Bible in a way that I just still haven't heard anybody do. He was teaching verse by verse of the Bible. So here I am, Wednesday nights. So here I am, 21, 22 years old. I don't know what's going on in my world, but something's different. I, I just don't know what's happening. I show up to this big church in Nashville where you get dressed up, you know, to go downstairs to get the newspaper. I show up to this Wednesday night thing in my sweats because I haven't showered yet because I was in the training room afterwards soaking my leg with this big thing of ice that's been wrapped to my leg and my Bible and I just plop myself down in the middle of the sanctuary because he was in the middle of something I had to hear. Something in me had absolutely changed. My, something in my heart, these, these new desires had been formed and I didn't know what was going on. My, my taste buds were altered, and they were shifted. And for some of you, this is what's happening. You, you don't know what's going on. Uh, things that once seemed so foreign and seemed so different and seemed so strange and seemed so ridiculous to you are all of a sudden sounding appealing. You're finding yourself wanting things that you never thought you would or you actually despised at one point in your life. It's this process and this, this moment of, of regeneration and sanctification when God has actually changed you. He's taken this heart that was so cold <clears throat> and hard towards him, and he's taken it out, and he's given you this new heart, this heart of flesh that's sensitive to him with new desires and new capacities, new gifts that he's given you and, and talents that he's given you to, to love and to serve and, and to experience the the reality of who he is and this new power, this new capacity to actually pursue these new desires that he's actually given you. He's actually made you new from the inside out. It's called regeneration. And that's where the process of transformation or this metamorphosis or, or this idea of sanctification actually begins. Now, in a sense, I mean, there is a a way in which you could say that because of regeneration, not only do we have a new heart, not only do we have new desires, not only do we have a new power to actually pursue the desires that he's given us, but the Bible actually says we become absolutely new creations. Later on in that same letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that because of what God has done for you in Christ, you've actually become a new creation. And there's this capacity that we can say with Paul in, in 
in probably the majority of his letters to the churches in the New Testament that were saints. That were saints. We are absolutely different people. And that's, that's language that somehow, I, somehow I'd like to accurately weave back into our, our, our discussion, our, our talk, our understanding. And Paul could address the churches in the New Testament as the saints in Philippi, the, the saints in Ephesus, those who have been transformed by God because of Christ, there is this reality that you are absolutely new with this new heart and new desires and new identity, this new creation, such a degree that we could say, morning, saints. To the saints of Redemption Hill in Richmond, there's this holy idea that because of what God has done for us in Christ, we are new people with an absolutely new potential to live the same life in the fallen world that we lived before God actually reached in and regenerated and transformed our hearts. But when God implants a new heart and new desires and and new life and, and new identity in people, it's in the best way, it's not perfect, but it's in seed form. It's, it's in this form that still has to mature, that still has to grow, that still has to be applied, that still has to work its way into our lives and into the way that we understand the world that we live in and the situations that we face. There's this idea that we are saints, but at the same time, we're still wrestling with this old man, this old flesh that we talked about when we studied Colossians, this part of us that still is at war with the spirit and the heart that God has put inside of us. It's a process. We, we are saints, but we're not yet what we will be. We are being transformed into the glory of the Lord as we behold it, but at that moment, we're not quite there yet. It's a process. It's a work. It's an ongoing thing that involves the cooperation of our will and God's work, and we'll get there in just a minute. But our lives, and I want to I say this, because I don't know how much this has actually affected everybody here, but I know it was really influential for me, and maybe it was because when I got saved, I was in Nashville, and most of this nastiness comes from Nashville or some surrounding area. But there's this idea that these TV crackpots, for the most part, have put out there that read this whole thing in, in 2 Corinthians 3 and this idea of being transformed in the image and likeness of, of Christ that Paul talks about in Romans 8 and this idea of regeneration and a new heart and a new spirit and a new identity and a new power that actually compels people to read the scriptures that way, ignoring so much of the rest of the story of what God is doing and will do one day. And they can stand up and say that because of this act of God on us and giving us a new heart and new desires, we can, should, and possibly already have perfected ourselves in this life. There is this reality, some people will say that because of this new heart, I can actually live perfect today. I can actually go through my day without sin. That, that if I didn't, I should, and it's there, but I just did something wrong, and so therefore I, I sinned, and it's an absolute crackpot notion in relation to, to the story of Scripture and what God is doing and what he has actually said he will do. And when you stop to think about it, and I won't spend too much time on it because it can be a rabbit trail, but when you stop to think about it, the very notion 
of perfection, the very notion of actually standing in front of you and confessing to be in the perfect image and likeness of Jesus is in fact the height of sin. I mean, is that not the most arrogant and prideful thing that someone could actually say? When God said that we're going to wrap all the commandments into one, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love him with everything that you are and your neighbor as yourself. And to say that I have stood up here today and actually have done that, as only Christ has done before me, is the height of arrogance and pride. It actually contradicts itself to say that you could do it. It's ridiculous. This process of of becoming in, uh, in the image and growing in the image and likeness of Christ is this ongoing work that God is doing in us as he is transforming us and we are working alongside of him and we are growing and cultivating what he has put in us, this new heart and these new desires and these new gifts and these new capacities because of his spirit into the reality of our lives and, and how we actually live. It's not perfection in a moment but it's, it's progress over a lifetime. It's progress over a lifetime. This is what Martin Luther was actually getting at in the quote on your bulletins. He said, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. If we can get this, I mean, if we can get this and grab a hold of this idea of the process of God transforming us right here, right now, in the midst of the world that we live in, by his act of putting a new heart in us and his spirit indwelling in us, giving us a new capacity to live out the new desires that he's put in us, if we could actually get this idea and and delight, we'll get to in a minute, this process, the wisdom of God in this process, it'll actually change our life. It it will actually change the way that we understand who he is and what he's doing. Luther has to say it so many different ways in this quote because we so easily miss it. We so easily and so desperately want that silver bullet, that quick fix, that pat answer, that here's the situation, just do this. Just read your Bible more. Just understand this more. Just have a fellowship with this person. Just do this thing. Just, just, just whatever. We so desperately want that that we cut off the work of God in changing us. We actually stunt this process of growth and maturity all for the sake of a quick answer to get us out of whatever it is we want to get out of and onto whatever it is we want. And we cut the work of God off at the knees. We're so desperate for this thing. It's actually kills what he's doing in us. If we could get this idea that maturation is a process, that there are times and there are seasons, that there are struggles that we will endure and there are joys that we will experience. There are seasons where we will go through one thing and God will come and prune that vine and things will come up anew. And just when we think that we have grown and matured and and, and overcome whatever it is we think we'll do, God just prunes away a little bit of a a vine and we see there's much more growth to come, but 
the growth that we've experienced because of what he's done gives us the confidence to expect the same kind of growth and change in what he's doing in new situations. It's, it's a process. It's a process. There's no quick fix. There's no just do this. Our lives are far from perfected in a moment. In fact, a better, a better way to understand our life, more of what we probably experience is probably better typified by what James talked about in James 4. Do you, do you, do you know James 4? Are you familiar with James 4? One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. James 4, verses 1 through 4. See if it, come, if it comes up. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Conflict? Is your life probably better typified with conflict than perfection? I mean, be honest now. I mean, from what you're going to make for breakfast and what somebody else wants and where you want to sit in the car or where you want to go to dinner or whatever the conflict may be, I would, be, I would probably go ahead and bet on it that your life is probably better characterized by conflict than it is perfection. And James says, what causes these quarrels? What causes these fights? What causes these conflicts among you? Is it not this, that, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he comes with this, you adulterous people? That, that seems kind of strange. You adulterous people. With all that, James says, what, what causes these, these conflicts? What causes these disagreements? What causes this strife? What causes these things that probably characterize our lives far more accurately than perfection? It's not the people. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your toddler. It's not your boss or your coworker in the cubicle next to you. It's not your car that doesn't run when you want it to run or get the gas you want it to get or the traffic that you sit in or the report the doctors gave you. It's not any of those things or any of those people. It's actually you. It's actually you. It's actually your desires and your wants and your passions that actually cause this conflict, that actually bring about this conflict. There's this reality that Desires are good. God gives us desires. Passions are great. God gives us passions. God actually gives us the passions that he wants us to have, that we might live them out and live in them for his glory and and ultimately the joy that we think we so desperately want. But what happens is there are passions that we want and passions that God is putting in us in this new heart and, and literally they're at war with each other. What I want tends to supersede often what God wants for me in this situation and I want and I crave and to such a degree that I will do whatever I can and use whoever I need to get whatever it is I think I want. So James says it's far from people and circumstances and things you go through that cause all these conflicts. It's not that sometimes people don't cause conflict, but that's really not the point of what causes a lot of the conflict and the root of the conflict among you. It's actually this war that's waging in your heart for your passion, for your delight, and for your joy. And the reality of of this process of transformation and this process of sanctification is the process of making God's desires the ruling desires in your heart because your sinful heart, your sinful self, that old man that is yet to be put away until we see him face to face, until we see God face to face in Christ is still trying to exalt its wants in your life. And there is a war going on in you and the process of transformation and maturation and sanctification is the process of making God's desires the ruling desires in your life. 
So much of the conflict that comes is because we try to cut off the process of what God's doing and figure out ways in our own eyes to fix what we think needs fixing, forgetting the fact that God is after this new heart, these new desires, this new life that he's actually given us. So James said, far from perfection, your life is probably far more characterized by conflict because there's a process going on that you're either aware to or unaware of that God is working in you and calling you to work with him for the transformation of your delight, the transformation of your joy, and ultimately the transformation of your life. So what do you do? What do you do? God has acted upon you and given you this new heart with new desires and this new power by his spirit. And there's this war that's going on in you because this part of you still wants to do what you want to do and what you think is right in your own eyes, which we go back and read the Bible a little further to the left, we find that in history, people did what they thought was right in their own eyes and it led to death. But the wisdom of God is, is actually not in allowing us to do what we think is right, but there's this battle going on in our souls and what do we do? Philippians chapter two, one of the most quoted, printed, reproduced, and butchered Verses in the entire Bible. We'll close out this morning by taking a look at it. What do you do? You got to work it out. You got to work it out. Philippians 2, chapter 12 and 13. I'm actually going to start back a couple of verses in chapter 12, but we're going to settle in on verse 12 and 13, but I'm going to go on. Therefore, stop there. Therefore, When you read the Bible, or anything else, story, novel, newspaper, whatever, therefore is because of. So when you read therefore, somebody's saying something that's based on something they've already said. So to understand what Paul's going to say in this next verse, that you already know where I'm going, you've got to understand what he's already said so that you make sense of it. We're going to have fun all summer doing this. We're going to pick on a lot of verses all summer. This is just an appetizer. We'll we'll let Ray pick on the rest of them this summer. Therefore, well, what have you already said, Paul? Well, the last 11 verses of chapter 2 have been one of the most beautiful and magnificent hymns about the person of Jesus that was ever written and recorded in all of Scripture. Paul just, I don't, you know, history will debate where this came from and how old this hymn actually is. But he actually put this hymn down in this letter to the Philippians that talks about the obedience and the humility of Christ who though in the form of God, though God of gods submitted himself to the will of the Father and came to earth and took on flesh and he lived the life, we say all the time, that we were created to live and for that life that we chose to live instead, Jesus gave himself up and died in our place on the cross for our sins. God of God, exalted for all of eternity, part of the God ahead, submitted himself to the will of God who said, I'm going to make my name great among the nations and I'm going to do something in you so that through you I will vindicate my holiness and here it is. I'm actually going to come down and do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And in that process, through what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to change you from the inside out. And the first 11 verses of Philippians 2 are about what God did in Christ who came with humility and obedience to the Father so that we could be reconciled to God, forgiven of our sins, and regenerated, given this new heart. And Paul says, therefore, because of Jesus, 
His submission to the Father, his obedience to God, his willingness to die on the cross for your sins and God's acceptance of that sacrifice and vindication of it by raising him from the dead. Therefore, my beloved, don't understand sanctification, transformation, metamorphosis, this growth and maturity in the spiritual life without understanding that you're loved by God. We're not going to take a lot of time with this, but if you don't understand that what God is doing in you and has done for you comes from his love towards you. One, you could be crushed and another, you could be despaired. You could find yourself crushed because of the weight that you think he's requiring of you because you don't understand what he's done for you in love or you can become despairing because you think you can't do what you think you have to do because you don't recognize what he's already done for you. And Paul says, listen, beloved, I, I know conflict, struggle, disunity, sickness, all the things that were going on in the church in Philippi that go on in our church and in churches all over here, listen, God's gonna do, God has done for you in Christ what you could not do. And listen, I'm gonna talk to you about how you grow in this, but understand that you're loved. The labor of Paul's life to love this church enough to write to them, to help them, to understand what it means to grow and to know and to be transformed. It's the same love that I have, that Ray has, that Chris has for this church that we give ourselves infinitely, eternally that you know you are loved by God in Christ. Don't try to figure this thing out or understand this change and what God is calling us to without understanding that you're loved by God. My, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. So you, you, you obeyed. You pursued the desires of the, your heart that God has, has given you and, and the things that I commanded you and the things that I taught you and, and you obeyed when I was with you and now I'm not, I'm in prison. So all the more obey because it's not to me that your obedience is due but to God for what he's done for you. A lot of people wrestle with this because much of our pursuit and our change and our obedience comes because we think that we'll gain the approval of a pastor or of a of a friend or of a leader. And, and what Paul's saying is, look, obedience is a huge part of this process of transformation. And, and the reasons why we obey is going to get to in a minute that are most important, but you don't do it to get anything from me. He was telling them, you don't do it to make me happy. You do it for God. So much more in my absence, Paul says, when I'm not with you, may there be obedience. But here it is. Dum -dum 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 -dum, drum roll. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Butchered, butchered, butchered. Paul said, do not work for, get this, do not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. Regeneration already happened. God has enacted upon you and ripped out that heart of stone and put in that heart of flesh with new desires and new power and a new spirit and new gifts. He has saved you. He has changed you. Now work out what God has already worked in. Listen to what he's saying. Work out. Ring out of this thing that God has done all that is in it. This idea of working this thing out is the same idea that would have been used back then of working out a math problem of taking a math problem from its beginning to its logical ending. It's the same phrase or the same word that would have been used of mining a field or of mining a cave, of getting out of it all that was in there, of just digging out of that thing every scrap of precious 
jewel that you could get of, of harvesting out of a garden, the last bit of fruit that you could get out of that thing, Paul is saying work out, bring out in your life, get out of all that God has done in you already through the gospel with this new heart, work it out. It's not work for, that's already been done. All of the work to save you has actually been done. All the righteousness that you, is, that you need to stand before God has already been achieved for you by Jesus. Don't work for this thing. It's been done. You've got it. Now work it out. Take the implications of what God has done for you and make application to it in your life. Wring the riches of this thing out. Work it out. It's a process. It's cultivating. It's recognizing, like we talked about, that, that image of that old house, the, the termite-infested beams in the bottom of that house and cutting those things out, getting them out and replacing them. It's working this message of the gospel deep into every facet of your life, of understanding who you are, the world you live in, the need you have, the God that's yours, and what he's done for you through the lens of Jesus and the message of the gospel. It's wringing this thing out till it's dry. And in the process, you are absolutely transformed. Absolutely transformed. Why, though? Here's the best part. The best part. I wish we, we, we could have stayed here longer. I should have gotten here faster. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For. For. Therefore, because Jesus Work out, ring out of what he's done for you, all the riches that are there in the gospel. Ring them out in your life. Make the application to your world for, because, God, it's already at work in you. What is the, the motivation? What is the, the thing that compels you to wring out of this thing all that is yours in the gospel and to see the gospel change you, to see the gospel transform how you understand who you are and how you live? Why? Because God's already at work in you. you, you he's already there. The heart has been changed. The heart has been replaced. The desires are there. Work it out. Best illustration I've ever seen is like riding a bike. I didn't make this up. This is one that will go down with me in history. I didn't make it up, so don't give me any credit. How does it work? This is the, the, the crazy, mysterious wisdom of God and the synergy of his work in us and our obedience to him. I heard somebody say it was like riding a bike. One pedal, one pedal, one pedal, one pedal. God initiates, we respond. God acts, we respond. God gives us a new heart with a new identity. We live according to it. God convicts us of sin, we respond in obedience. God gives us a new power, we live out of it. Dun, 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 dun. And together, progress, forward, action, maturity, growth. The process of transformation is this unbelievably wise and incredible process where God in his infinite wisdom and goodness has called us to join him in the work of taking what he has already done on our behalf, all of the heavy lifting being done, and he has initiated in our life, and he has called us in to just respond to it. He's called us to respond to the work that he's already done in our life. We work out. 
We make application because he's already done it for us. He has already worked in us. He has already given us a new heart with new desires. It's less about what we don't do and more about what we do, what we actually should do. I was going to say duty, but you would have laughed. For so, for so many people, this idea of growth and maturation and sanctification and what the church talks about and, and this beautiful idea of holiness and maturity is this process of figuring out all the things that you shouldn't do. Here are all the things that you don't do anymore because now you, you're a Christian. You showed up in church three times or you've done whatever they said you had to do. This is who you are. Now this is what you don't do. And what God is actually saying in the scriptures in this process is that growth and maturity is more about what you do now in response to what God has already done. That, that's the beauty of it. He has actually enacted on you, on your behalf, and then given you. Here's the beauty. I love this. That's why I love some of the languages here. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what God has already done that should compel you to respond to him in obedience and with delight and with joy. God has actually worked on you and in you both to will. He has actually changed your desires and your will for you. Arguments about free will or no free will. You want God's will. And he has actually already worked on you and given you a new heart with new desires and a new will. He gives you the desire to obey, to pursue what he wants. He's actually done that in you. Those things that you're tasting, those things that you're feeling, those things like, I I didn't want to do this, but that's God working in you, giving you a new will. And this idea of working, it's where we get the word energy. He's actually given you not only the desire, but the energy to actually work to actually work it out, to actually respond, to actually be obedient. That energy is his spirit. The same spirit, Paul said, that raised Jesus from the dead is now living and active, alive in you, taking the desires that God has put in you in a new heart and giving you the power to actually pursue them, follow through with them, to wring them out and to work them out into your life. He's given you the desire, he's given you the capacity, he's given you the power, now he says just respond. Respond. That's all this is. I don't know the, the 10,000 ways I've heard this talked about, but it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. God actually delights in working in you for your transformation, for your joy. God actually takes pleasure. And as God works in you, gives you new desires and new capacity to pursue those desires. Like he said back in Ezekiel, as you live those things out, work those things out, and transformation takes root, and the process gets moving, and growth and maturity comes, his name is vindicated in the way that you respond to life. His name is made much of. People see him in you, and he is made great. You're receiving joy because the desires of your heart are actually being lived out because he's put them in you because it's what you want, and now you're getting what you want, doing what you want. You're getting joy. He's getting glory. He's made great. You receive delight. Unbelievable process. Unbelievable process. The thing that we're committed to in in all of this is is to to be a people as a church and and as individuals who, who are committed to cultivating souls and hearts that grow in a delight for the wisdom of what God has done in the process that he has instituted in changing us and transforming us into his image and likeness. Paul goes on in a few verses. I, I won't get to him. We don't have time. I, I wish we could. He goes on in a few verses and he says, 
in, in all of this, basically, in, in what he is calling them to do to work this out. He, he says, I'm proud of you. Basically, he looks at the church and he says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you because I see this happening in your life. I'm proud of you because I see this actually being cultivated and worked out in your life. And I want to stand before God one day and give an account for you and for your souls because he's going to do that as a pastor and I'm going to do that as a pastor. And and we're going to have to give an account for the church and for the people and we want to be able to look at God and say, you know what, I'm proud of him. Not in some arrogance, but proud of you. You've delighted in what God is doing. You've delighted in what he has done. It's been worked out into your life and through your life. He has been made much of by the way that you've lived. And you know what? I'm proud of you. And I can honestly say that I'm, I'm proud of you. I mean, as a pastor here, I'm actually proud of you. I have actually begun to see people wring this thing out in a way that they never have before. We're actually beginning to see religious people who pursued the ultimate goal of being nice and approved begin to ring out in their life what it means to actually be new. I mean, part of what it means to be a grace-driven people is to be a people who are no longer seeking this approval as being nice and, and trying to figure out the right things to do to be approved by the people so that people don't get mad, so that God doesn't get mad, so that I get accepted when I get to heaven one day. And the reality of it is being grace-driven and seeing this thing take root and ringing this thing out in our life and this beautiful process is that we're not nice, we're, we're actually new. And I'm proud of you because I'm seeing it happen. And what I'm committed to, what Chris is committed to, what Ray is committed to, what we hope you're committed to, what we as a church want to be committed to is to cultivating a delight just as God takes pleasure in doing good to his people. God takes pleasure in involving us and using us, changing us and through us, vindicating his name and his glory. We take delight in the wisdom of God that made that possible and that called that into being. That's what we're committed to cultivating here, but it's going to take work. Just like our maturation isn't perfection in a moment, it's a progress over a lifetime. It's going to take commitment and work on our part to cultivate this kind of delight, but that's, that's what we're committed to because it's God who's at work in Redemption Hill. It's God who's at work in you. It's God who's at work in me, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So like Paul said in the beginning of Philippians, which you didn't read, we can take joy and we can take delight because we know that God is going to bring to completion what he's already started. God is going to finish in you and in this church what he's already started. So we can pursue that with great joy, great expectation, and great anticipation. That's what we're about. That's what we want to embody. That's what we want to value. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your wisdom that made a way for you to reconcile yourselves to really rebellious and hard people like myself. You made a way to reconcile yourself and your holiness and your justice and your mercy and your righteousness and your goodness and love to the men and women like me who wanted nothing to do with it. And you acted on our behalf for your glory to change us and that through that change and through your spirit, we could be and will be transformed into the image of your son. We thank you for that wisdom and God, we pray for a delight. We pray for that process and the recognition of you working in us day in and day out to bring joy and pleasure to us because we are confident that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so we can pursue, we can cultivate, 
we can work out what it means to be people transformed by your goodness with absolute joy, with absolute delight, and with absolute expectation that you will finish what you've started. All, all of it ultimately for you to be made much of. And we thank you for doing this in, in the person and work of your son in whose name we pray, amen.